is what's happening as of right now. According to BuzzFeed, President Trump told his fixer, Michael Cohn, to lie to Congress. He persuaded Michael Cohn to commit perjury. Please remember this term here. He persuaded Michael Cohn to commit perjury about the Trump Tower Moscow project that apparently was being talked about uh, throughout 2016, or at least half of it. So very, very important to know. Now, a couple things that I want you to think about here for a moment. First off, we've got law enforcement officials, law enforcement officials that are leaking this information, suggesting that President Trump asked Cohn or, you know, influenced Cohn to lie to Congress. First off, they should obviously should not be leaking this. And clearly, if you put two and two together, somebody in the special counsel is leaking this information to these law enforcement officials, thus going out and leaking it to BuzzFeed, I don't know why BuzzFeed, that one I can't explain. I will remind you that BuzzFeed is the organization that was the first one to publish the Steele dossier, <laughs> the fake news dossier. BuzzFeed was the first to do that. But what I want you to start to think about is, are a few things. Shouldn't be leaked, it got leaked. You gotta ask yourself this, is Cone telling us the truth now or before? Because if we, we know Cohn says that, hey, I lied. He's lied to Congress. He's lied multiple times. Just one thing to think about for him as a witness, is he a trustworthy person? But the biggest thing, the biggest thing I want you to ask yourself tonight, to think about for a moment, because oftentimes when you and I have these conversations, say, you know, as you're going through and watching media, take a moment to take a step back and ask yourself some critical thinking questions. Okay, here's what I mean specifically. This stuff about Michael Cohn happened a while ago. This story suggests that there's corroborating instances around it. So we know that happened a while ago. So you want to ask yourself, why now? Why in the world would these people, whether it be special counsel, FBI investigators, whoever it is, they shouldn't be leaking it, but, but why leak it now? And why does BuzzFeed drop the story now. I want to get to a couple things here when I talk about this, because remember, it was just on Sunday, Jonathan Carl from ABC said, you know what, I got to tell you, the people I'm talking to within the means of the special counsel, within that domain, they're saying that this report that Mueller's going to file at some point in time, it's going to be anticlimactic. It's not going to have the big explosion that I think many people on the left are hoping that it's going to have. So that's one thing to note. The other thing to think about is this, why drop it now suggesting that, again, Michael Cohn was persuaded, influenced by President Trump to perjure himself. Those words are very, very important because this was last night, Thursday. On Tuesday, Senator Amy Klobuchar was asking some questions of Bill Barr, the nominee for the Attorney General. I want to share with you some of what Senator Klobuchar was asking Bill Barr and see if it starts to go, hmm, coincidence? I don't know. In your memo, uh, you talked about the, the Comey decision, and you talked about obstruction of justice, and you already went over that, which I appreciate. You wrote on page one that a president persuading a person to commit perjury would be obstruction. Is that right? That, y yes. Okay. Or any, any, well, you know, any person who persuades any person. another. To, yeah. Okay. You also said that a president or any person convincing a witness to change testimony would be obstruction. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? On Tuesday, Senator Amy Klobuchar is asking questions about, hey, you also wrote that if someone influenced somebody to commit perjury, then that would be obstruction, correct? And then Thursday, boom, there it is. BuzzFeed has the story. President Trump asked Cohn to commit perjury, essentially is what the, you know, the bottom line of the story is. 
Coincidence or not, would love to know your point of view on that. Now, she does go on to talk about as well, hey, if people are out there destroying evidence, is that going to be obstruction? Here's what I want to get at. What we're trying to realize here in America is that Lady Justice may not be as blind as we once thought because, look, if this indeed did happen, I don't know if, you know, Michael Cohen was coerced to commit perjury or not. That I don't know. If he did, clearly that is wrong. The other side of it, though, is what about Hillary Clinton deleting 30,000 emails? Is that obstruction of justice when they've been subpoenaed? What about her hammering out her phones? What about bleach pitting uh, an email server? Is that obstructing justice as well? Again, I hope Lady Justice is blind because I think that's what's going to keep America together. Now, quickly, President Trump did respond to the Buzz, uh, BuzzFeed story via Twitter. He tweeted this out earlier today. Kevin Cork at Fox News. That's the White House Fox News guy. Don't forget, Michael Cohen has already been convicted of perjury and fraud. And as recently as this week, the Wall Street Journal has suggested that he may have stolen tens of thousands of dollars lying to reduce his jail time. Watch father-in-law. That piece I don't entirely know. I think his father-in-law was involved in the New York City taxicab situation. So maybe there's money laundering there. I, I don't know. I don't want to speculate. But obviously, <laughs> we'll see what comes out of that. So please share your point of view with me. Again, I'm asking you to think critically. When you see these quote-unquote bombshell stories that get dropped, just take a moment to step back. Don't just slurp them up and go, wait a second, why, why now? What, what, what is going on here behind the scenes that maybe I'm not totally aware of? Hopefully what we talk about here tonight sheds some light on that for you as well. All right, one of the biggest industries, as we all know here in the great state of North Dakota, is ag. And one of the things that really helps our ag industry is research. So recently we sat down with the chairman of the State Board of Agriculture Research and Education here in North Dakota, Mr. Keith Peltier, to talk about why it's important to ensure that the state is funding ag research. Chairman, great to have you on Point of View, Chair of the State Board of Ag Research and Education. I know you want to talk about that today. So for people that maybe aren't familiar with what exactly that is, what it does for our state, give us kind of the five-year-old I'll give you, I'll give you a, a little primer on that, Chris. So it got started in 1997, the State Board of Ag Research and Education, the brainchild of actually the former Governor Dalrymple and Gene Nicholas. They, they felt that there was not enough uh, citizen input on research and uh, also they felt that the uh, there, there were just myriads of people going out to the state legislature you know chomping at them for money hey, give me this <laughs> give me that and it was really fragmented so they developed this plan it was a good one really so the um, they have a state board of ag research and education five people are elected by the um, ag coalition which is a group of 40 commodity groups of the state i'm one of those five then five are appointed by the extension service and there's five districts in the state or that they've allocated for that so there's five of those people two legislatures one from each party one from the house one from the senate and then the ag commissioner those so those people are on the state board of ag research and education we hear testimony about oh starting two years ago really on what the citizens of the state think is important in ag research. So anybody from a, a professor or an experiment station guy can testify to the wheat commission to Joe individual and you know if he thinks and then we we kind of try and lump those into you know similar categories called priorities and then we vote on them. So it's so it's kind of a consensus not everybody <laughs> right the top one that came out the top one not everybody thought it was the top one but it's weighted it's so it's pretty good system on developing the priorities of uh, research to 
move forward to the legislature saying, hey, we think these are important. We've surveyed the citizens and go from there. So for someone at home watching right now that get not very familiar with this, why does this matter to them and their dinner table, if you will? How does this program make a difference for their family? So I, I here's, here's what the take on it. You know, of course, ag research is the engine that fuels agriculture. And you cannot spend a better dollar of state money than for ag research. Several studies out there, including you know, some done by NDSU, over a 40 or 50 year time period, the ROI on ag research is 40 percent. 40 percent. I challenge you, your, your 401 I was going to say, can you invest in that too? Yeah, no. you can. You can't beat it. So great return for the money. And uh, so we think that it's, it's, not, uh, it's not an expense, it's an investment in the future. Well, and you gave me a great story a while back where you talked about acres back in the day. Western North Dakota was just sort of this abyss, and now we're obviously generating some revenue. So that's for the that's soil. a great story. If I if you get a little time, I'll tell it. So uh, I don't know if the viewers are familiar with summer follow, but that's a uh, term where you idle acres and don't plant anything on it. You keep it black. Western North Dakota had about six and a half million acres of summer follow in the early 90s. Two guys, one guy, Keith Brown, who was an extension agent, and Dick Rowland, who was a producer, said, hey, we need to... Let's see if we can put something on that summer follow. They started out with pulses, which is uh, chickpeas and green, be and green beans or, you know, edible beans. And that got followed up by research from the Carrington Station and the Minot Station on adding uh, canola, corn, soybeans, sunflowers, in addition to uh, um, no-till. So those kind of combined, and they turned, uh, of course, the research proved that, yes, you could, and yes, it would add value. So the extension service took that, uh, had transformational information, so they got the word out. Uh, by the late 90s, that acreage had turned into less than uh, 300,000 acres. So if you do the math, 6 million acres and $200 an acre is a pretty reasonable figure for gross revenue per acre in Western North Dakota. That's 1.2 billion a year. And over the 20 years since the late 90s, that's 20 billion. So just in that one wow. instance, we returned, you know, 20 billion to the North Dakota economy. And huge number. People with some context, like for example, this biennium, your entire budget is 94 million, correct? correct. So for, again, for all the for the experiment stations and the extension service, yeah, about 94 million for the biennium, which you know divides. So by 94 two million for a billion dollar, yeah, that that's a pretty yeah. good return. <laughs> and of course, it all doesn't go that way. Chris. No, but I mean, <laughs> that's a good example, though. To some yeah, it's people. a fantastic example. It's a big number, and it really shows uh, what we can produce, turn to the states. Because ag is in every county. It's in 53 counties. One out of every four people employed in yeah. North Dakota is employed in agriculture. Thank you so much for what you do for our state and for our ag guys. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you again to Chairman Peltier. He does great, great work for our state and for all of our great ag producers. Also, a big issue in our state right now is addiction, unfortunately. A very, very large problem here in North Dakota. One organization that's doing everything they can to begin to stop or at least mitigate that issue in our state is an organization called First Link. If you ever need help, if you're an addict or you've got a family member, all you got to do is call 211. So I sat down uh, recently with First Link Executive Director Cindy Miller and also Jennifer Holtz. To both of you, welcome so much to Point of View. It's great to have you here in studio. Obviously, one of the biggest issues that we face, really as a country, but specifically in our community as well, is just opioid crisis, the overdose. That's how your position 
came about. Kind of walk us through how your position was created and what you hope to accomplish. Yeah, so a couple of years ago, uh, the Mayor's Blue Ribbon Commission on Addiction formed, and they, in talking with other members of the community, uh, determined that uh, one of the biggest barriers to people getting help for their addiction is not knowing where to go or how to start. And so they conceived the Community Navigator Program. Um, and then I started in August and we launched the program in September. So helping people get connected, that call through First Link. So yeah, walk us through the, the partnership with First Link. And so if I call a certain number, yep. then what? Dial 211 and we're gonna be able to get you connected to the navigator. So what's really great is if you had, if we had a service provider here doing it, then they would feel like people are only referring to their own agency. This way we're an impartial third party who's going to figure out what's best for the person, what their needs are, what their insurance are, what is available. We all work in silos and we all have our own you know, individual work that we do. And now Jennifer's bringing them all together to find out what openings there are, who has beds available, who has time to be able to meet with someone or do an evaluation and get them into the right service quickly. So what if I'm not the addict, but I'm a parent or a relative and I'm like concerned, but Maybe the addict's not ready to get treatment, but I'm saying, hey, I need to do something here. Can I call 211, communicate with you, and you can give me some resources as well? Or? Yeah, absolutely. So the program is for any concerned person, and really that could be a parent, it could be a loved one, it could be an employer. Um, if, you're, if you call 211, our call center is available 24 hours a day, and... Uh, we can offer listening and support and some resources. Um, when you connect with me, we'll talk a little bit about options and have some discussion around what are some resources that are available to you as a concerned parent or loved one and uh, some tools that you can use to hopefully build some motivation to get that person to connect with me too. Yeah, easier said than done, I think, at times. Definitely. So we're in the middle of a legislative session. Uh, you're going to probably be going out to Bismarck, I'm assuming, asking for what specifically? Yes, we won't. We want to continue First Link's funding, their two-in-one <clears> funding, but there's also a bill, um, House Bill 1329, that's going to enhance our services. So trying to get more money to help with education and awareness. We cover the entire state, so we're there for anyone 24-7, and so we need more money to be able to help fund getting that word out there, you know, to educate people across the state. Educate them about what specifically? About what our services are, like, so they know oh. that they can utilize this service, that we have a suicide follow-up call program, so they can be able to, when they get discharged or when there's someone struggling with suicidal thoughts or feelings, they can call us, we can get them connected, and within the first 24 hours, we're going to be checking back in with them, making sure they're okay, they're going to their appointment, they're taking their meds, you know, what's, if they're not, what's going on, you know, can we help you with maybe transportation or paying for your meds. And what kind of money are you looking for? This bill is for 235000 um, is the appropriation. And what we're looking at it for is also to help increase our staff wages. Currently, our staff um, make $12 an hour as a call specialist, handling 24 hours a day suicide calls. And wow. So trying to be able to get some more funding to try to be able to increase you know, job. Um, it's, it's an issue around here, getting um, good workers and being able to get. We need a lot of training. It's a high-skilled job and they need to be paid like they should be paid. Well, yeah, I think some people might hear 235 and go, wow, that's a lot of money. But when you contrast that with what it takes for law enforcement to go out there and find addicts, yeah. possibly incarcerate them, what we're paying to incarcerate these people, 235 could be considered a steal. <laughs> right. So if yes. it's used appropriately. Right. Anything else you want to add? Um, just call 211 if you'd like uh, to talk to somebody about resources for addiction or 
mental health or even basic needs. And I think someone at home wants you to say hi to them. Yep. Hi, kids. <laughs> <laughs> They're always wanting me to. The other thing is, we had a record year last year, 55,340 calls last year. See, I don't know if I should be excited or sad about that. Well, I, I like to be the positive half the glass is half full, people are learning more about us. So I'm okay. kind of wanting to think that more people are calling because they're realizing there is help and hope. Um, but in the same way, um, there's a lot of people who need help out there. Yeah, so. there's so many mental health issues. Yeah. I mean, everybody talked right now on all those issues like, hey, that is the number one behavioral mental health. We've yeah. got to get handled in some way, shape, or form. So right. thanks for the insight. Keep up the great work. We appreciate yeah. it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks again to Cindy and Jennifer. We appreciate what they're doing for everybody in our state.